Welcome to 42 Answers from Founders for Founders, a podcast series brought to you by Project A Ventures, the operational VC. My name is Rainer Berak, operating partner at Project A, and our guest today is Kimberly Breuer. Welcome. In this podcast, we talk to great founders and we ask them a standardized set of questions in the domains that we think matter tremendously for building successful companies. And these are tech, growth, people, data, and ESG. Kimberly, who are you, what do you do, and why do you do it? Yeah. Hi, Rainer. I'm happy to be here today. I am Kimberly Breuer. I'm one of the founders of Like-Minded, a mental health platform in the B2B context. Um, so what am I doing there? I'm next to my other co-founders um, responsible for mainly the psychological part of the product because I am myself a psychologist and that is also one of the main reasons why I founded Like-Minded. Um, we believe that there is a great stigma around the topic of mental health and also at the same time there is a great demand for mental health support, which is why we built a mental health platform that gives anonymous and easy access to psychological support for employees. And that way we aim to really break the stigma around the topic, but also really facilitate the access to valuable psychological support. And yeah, my greatest motivation for myself is that I am also coming from the background and I saw what it can do to people to get psychological support, how it can change their lives. I, I made the experience myself and this is, I think, my greatest motivation to share this experience with as many people as possible and really break the stigma around the topic. Mm -hmm. And who's your immediate target group, not in the sense of users, but to whom do you actually sell that? Do you sell that to companies or directly to the users? How does that work? So the, the final psychological support is there for the employees, so for the final end user. However, we are selling it to companies and our target group or sweet spot right now is between um, 200 FTE up to 5000 FTE. And we are mainly targeting companies actually in any industry. However, we are especially targeting companies who are already open-minded when it comes to such culture topics and who really want to, um, to work on the topic of mental health within their companies. People. If you would start a company today, what would be your first five hires? Mm -hmm. um, so my first five hires would um, be a CPO, but being really part of the founding team, as it also is at Likeminded. Then also head of marketing, since the mental health market or especially the topic is a very um, a topic that you really need to educate, which is why we believe highly into marketing and branding. Then also head of sales, because of course it's an execution game when it comes to the B2B market and you really need to have a strong sales engine. And then we also would hire a psychotherapist, so really have expertise in the company, in the team to make sure your psychological product has high quality. And finally, a senior HR person or a senior recruiter to make sure that you have all the basics in the people department um, from, from scratch there and can build up on it. Uh -huh. And were these your first five hires? Partly. Um, so the CPO was one of the first hires and is part of our founding team. And that was really the right decision. We hired the head of marketing a bit later. We made sure that we had some expertise with freelancers in the team. However, this would be something that we would, would do a bit differently in the, in the future. 
Then we are still looking for a head of sales. Um, we do have a sales team and also a team lead sales, but um, finding the right head of sales is still a challenge. And um, yes, we also had a psychotherapist from the very beginning, which was also the right decision. And we had someone senior in HR to help us build the basic um, processes in people. What's the hardest to hire today? Um, the hardest is definitely the head of sales, we would say, because um, for us, head of sales means that needs to be someone with quite some expert experience and expertise when it comes to building sales processes, but also being a good salesperson themselves. And at the same time, it really needs to be someone who can identify with the product and fits into the culture. In this combination makes it quite difficult to find the exact right person. And no. then... Of course, engineering, as uh, I would say, always. <laughs> yeah, we're getting back to the sales topic because we hear that obviously quite a lot might be the blind spot of our industry. Um, how do you measure employee satisfaction so that the people you hire also stick around? Yeah, um, so recently we actually started to use OfficeWipe, which is an employee experience platform that helps us to anonymously assess the motivation, the engagement and the satisfaction by our people. And this is something that we are reading out and also in our all-hands meetings. And we start discussing and having um, yeah culture workshops around it to really increase satisfaction and make sure our people um, can be part of forming our culture and really love to work at like-minded. Mm -hmm. And how about performance? Do you have any tool or any mechanism to, to measure that? Yes, we do. So in general, in terms of company performance, we are working with OKRs. This is something that we have started with right away from the start. And I also have to say it's a process that really needs to, uh, needs to take some time to be really well developed. I think right now we're at a state where it's, it's running really, really well. Everyone um, can work with OKRs and it's Yeah, it's just increasing the focus for the whole company. Everyone is aligned. Everyone knows what's the, the most prioritized topics. And that is working very well for us. However, that's, of course, just the company performance. We do specifically not use it for individual performance. When it comes to individual performance, we're rather going for competency models and um, rate the people on different dimensions and are also going to implement a 360 degrees feedback around it to make sure to really have a valid assessment for individual performance. Thanks. What's your approach to culture? What is the approach to culture? Um, in general, we go for three main points, which is radical candor, autonomy and responsibility because we highly believe that great teams do perform well when they have a lot of autonomy and a lot of responsibility and all of that all of this can only happen and take place when you are living some sort of radical candor which means high transparency a good feedback culture so that everyone really dares to speak up and feels the psychological safety to give feedback and also receive feedback. And this is a culture we are going for and which that we really want to implement at Like-Minded to make sure every individual can thrive um, and really feel well and comfortable in our culture. Are you a remote-first or office-first company? I would say office first remote friendly however we are right now testing a rather hybrid model so 
people come to the office at minimum two days per week, but most of the time people come even more often. This is something that we're currently trying to do. However, I personally would say it's still an experiment and a test. The, the whole hybrid culture and remote culture is, I think, new for a lot of companies. And I feel especially in startups at our stage where we're still a small team and in a scaling mode that is growing fast and have a lot of change, it's very, really important to also have face-to-face -face time and not only work remotely. And this is what we are convinced of. So we're trying to, to get the people into the office as, as often as possible and have a lot of bonding moments and also events together as a team. Tech. Would you call like-minded a tech company? Yes, um, we have been developing more and more into one. Um, of course, we are offering, let's say, service that, services that can be um, offered offline in an online space. But on top of that, we are also building algorithms based on machine learning that help us to assess the mental health state of all our users and thereby give personalized recommendations. Because when it comes to the topic of mental health, it's it's an, a topic that is less educated. People most of the time don't really know where am I at? How am I feeling? What do I need, actually? And this is something that we really want to transform. And on top of that, it's also still in the offline, let's say, psychotherapy market, um, very less database. So this is also something that we want to, to use as, an, as a value add or as an asset to collect as many data as possible and really um, increase effectiveness of mental health support in the online area. Yeah. If you look at the product people and uh, you most likely also have developers, um, who, who of the two groups is in the lead? It's definitely product in, in our team. So product is in the lead and um, is leading yeah, everything, every priorities, all the new features that are going to be developed in close work with the engineering team and the psychology team. So we have an extra psychology team of psychological experts that is working very close with product as well. So if we think about who actually decides what to develop next, it's not the product manager or the product team alone but they do that together with the psychologists. Exactly, exactly. So this is really a cross-collaboration, I would say, um, where, of course, the CPO has a, the final say in it. However, mm -hmm. for us, it's always important that product discusses together with psychology who have the expertise, which feature is really needed and what can be as effective as possible to develop. Mm -hmm. Can you describe the decision-making process a little bit more? How do they come together? How, which, which iterations do you have? How does that work? So I would say the OKR processes in general are our guiding framework. So what we're doing is after developing objectives and key results, we're developing jointly and so called workshops, initiatives for each of the key results. And in those initiatives, we have cross teams. So in, in an initiative that could be something like creating the individualized journey for someone with the topic of stress and moderate severeness, for example, could be an initiative. Um, all the teams get involved that, that are needed. So it will be product because they are responsible for the user experience, for the features that are going to be built, engineering, of course, and psychology. And then they have initiative kickoffs, so meetings, so-called meetings in which they discuss together what are the tasks everyone is going to work on. And of course, in those meetings, we also use prioritization frameworks to discuss together 
what is the most important to be worked on, how do we discuss separately or even asynchronously, for example, in Slack, what is needed next. And um, yeah, everyone is involving themselves very effectively. So as I mentioned, the OKR process in general is a really helpful um, framework for us to guide such decision processes as well. Uh, interesting. Uh, we talked to a lot of founders uh, where uh, OKRs play a vital role in the development of the company and, and, the, and the whole performance setup. But to basically have that steer the, the, pro the, the, um, the product uh, process to that extent, uh, that, that's actually a very good, very good point, very good idea. Um, what's your take on product-led growth? Mm -hmm. um, so in general, we are following the product-led growth approach, so to say, because we believe that in the end, only the user knows um, what needs to be developed next. And of course, everyone has an opinion, but this is why we are trying to be very, very close to our users all the time. And a product is using a lot of analytics and data to make sure that everything that we develop next is really based on data and based on the needs of our users. Um, and for example, we are offering our clients always a three-month three trial period in which we try to be very, very close to the client on the one side, so the HR person, who is most of the time our, our talk-to person. But on the other hand, we are very close to the users in that time. We do a lot of surveys with them. We collect a lot of data and feedback to make sure that we um, really understand their needs and can develop our product further in a way that they really can use it for. Mm -hmm. Which role does design play um, at your company? Um, I would say a very, very high role. So our product team consists by now already of two designers within the team. And we also had a senior di designer directly from the start because our designers are responsible for the whole part of user experience and user interface. And we are very focused on, let's say, the part of user experience because we believe highly the product should always be the guidance to the user. So we don't want the user to end up in our product and having to choose everything on their own, but we're actually building a product that is leading the user through the whole journey. And for that, we see design as a very important um, role in the whole process of product development. Do you or would you ever outsource software development? No, not really. Um, in the very, very, very beginnings, um, we did start with a um, tech agency. Um, and then at some point, I think already after a few weeks, we decided to, to um, take everything in-house. And this transition was rather difficult than easy. And our learning from that is that we would always go again from the start with With in house, with an in house software team starting to develop everything and back end and in, in, in our team so that we have all the knowledge from the start and um, can build up on that very quickly and then scale from there. Growth. If you think about the complete funnel from brand to marketing to sales to customer success, do you have all these functions? Yes, we do have all those functions. <laughs> And is any of them in the lead? How, are, how What's the structure among them? Mm -hmm. So I would say we are probably going for a very holistic marketing approach. That means uh, marketing is in general responsible for the whole funnel and is making sure that every position in this funnel is playing its role in the right way, so to say. Also, marketing is responsible for our brand. 
And then sales um, is working really as a straightforward B2B SaaS sales process. Um, so we have SDRs and AEs in our sales funnel and process. And then, of course, we have customer success, who is then taking on the leads that has become clients. Um, and our customer success team is in general structured into three, let's say, pillars. One is focusing on the client, one is focusing on the users, and one is focusing, of course, on our psychologists on the platform. Mm -hmm. Now, as long as things are great, they are great, but sometimes uh, the revenue might not pour in. And then in some companies, it happens that they start to blame each other, especially those who are rather <laughs> bringing the leads and the others who are responsible for converting them, marketing and sales. How can you avoid that? Yes. That's a very good question um, because this is of definitely um, a greater challenge, I would say, in probably most of the startups. Um, what we are doing here is that we have them work very, very closely together. So before we start going into the operational work and activities day by day, we have really um, meetings up front in which sales and marketing are aligning on goals. Here again, the OKR system is very, very helpful. And um, we make sure they have really close exchange between the departments and rather see it as a joint goal to close leads in the end than to work against each other. Mm -hmm. um, how about brand? How important is brand for you? You mentioned that marketing is taking care of your brand. Yes. Um, so partly marketing is taking care of the brand because design is, of course, also involved. And mm -hmm. actually, it's a topic that is also very close to me. So as I said in the beginning, um, I'm responsible for everything when it comes to, let's say, the psychological tone of voice in the company. And I'm rather taking responsibility for everything that is going to the outer world, so to say. And brand for me personally is a very, very important part of the company, especially of a mental health company. Since mental health is a very emotional and personal topic, we, we are convinced that brand is even more important, that you have to align it with the people's needs and um, you really have to make sure that you're addressing the right people and you're finding the right tone of voice to create your messaging. Um, it's a very implicit part of the company of course it's very tough to measure however we already see good results and we are further developing our current brand um, with a lot of focus because we are convinced it can be a game changer so how do you approach it how do you define what your brand is or should be and and how do you operationalize that Yes. So until now, we have actually developed everything around our brand in-house. Um, the reason why we did this is because we also believed that in the beginning as a company, you have to, first of all, define yourself. And this takes some time. And for that, you need to understand your users first and your clients first and also your own team first, because the brand will be in the end the combination of your team and your users and your clients. And we believe that starting with an agency right from the start would be maybe a bit too early because then everyone is not really knowledgeable about the topic. So this is the reason why we started to create our brand, first of all, in-house. And now that we arrived at a point where we understood which direction we want to go, which really fits to our brand, to our company and our product, we are starting to work with an agency to bring it really to the next level. Thank you. Uh, which marketing channels do you use and why these specific ones? 
Yes. So we are mainly relying on three engines, which is performance marketing, organic, and also events such as marketing webinars, where we have live speakings from psycho psychologists to really educate educate about the topic. Um, and the reason is um, this helps us to create a really integrated marketing approach. So we're not only reliable on one engine with consistent customer journeys and also spread the risk of fluctuation here. Mm -hmm. What's your take on performance marketing in general? There are people saying it's dying. Is it dying mm -hmm. anytime soon? <laughs> well, it's maybe dead and uh, not dead yet, but more and more costly, so to say, for yeah. especially for smaller companies. They have to invest more and earlier into organic demand and lead gen measures. And this is also where we say the role of brand becomes even more important, which is mm -hmm. why we're investing really heavily into building a brand that is kind of a true thought leader. Let it be on LinkedIn. Um within our topic space because we believe we through that we can really enable and educate and also strengthen the community around the topic of mental health and create another marketing channel or engine that is reliable as well so you do have salespeople, um at least that's what i understood and where do you find good digital savvy salespeople? in your case actually on top of digital savvy people who actually understand what you are doing there mm -hmm. yeah yeah so as i said in the beginning sales in general as well as engineering is still very very tough to hire however what we've done so far is that we also were relying a lot on on our network so a lot of our salespeople also came through network and referrals this is um, a lever that we always try to pull within the team and on top of that Gratefully, our topic is a topic that a lot of people can identify with and a lot of people really love to work. So we also actually see very, very good inbound. So the quality of our inbound when it comes to recruiting is most of the time quite high because more and more people start really looking for a job that is purpose-driven and mental mm -hmm. health is definitely one of the, the topics that people see as a great purpose. Data. How does data make like-minded successful? Mm -hmm. So in general, as I said, also, we are a tech company because we are starting to use data and building algorithms that will help us to really create an effective mental health solution. And with those mental health data, first of all, we create really effective and valuable user journeys for the users. So it's really a product people find great value in and um, also see like the healing or um, optimization after using our product. And second of all, we also use data within the company, as I said, for product development um, to make sure that the features we're developing are really the ones that create the greatest impact. Um, which functional areas are supported by your data team? I, I suppose you do have like a dedicated data team, is that correct? Yes, we have a head of data mm -hmm. and um, the head of data is working closely with the engineering and the product team. Mm -hmm. um, and the functional areas um, are everything related to data like EDA, so exploratory data analysis, mm -hmm. model building and serving, which means machine learning as a service. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, and then the data driven product, as I said. Mm -hmm. So in, in that... 
um, does the data team rather answer specific questions or do they get data sets and then they are free to explore what which opportunities to find there? Mm -hmm. um, I would say actually both. It goes into both directions. So first of all, they do answer specific questions because we do also have a hypothesis-driven approach with some mm -hmm. aspects, especially when it comes to the personalized journeys. Here we are building, of course, on hypotheses that we also find in within research, within psychological research. And the, the data team is trying to answer those, those hypotheses or at least validate those with the data. But at the same time, we are following the EDA, the exploratory data analysis, which means mm -hmm. that we explore a lot of data, which is also due to the fact that psychological research also still has a lot of room for mm -hmm. exploration, let's say. Yeah. How can you make sure that the people really do what the data recommend instead of looking at it, putting it aside and following their gut feeling? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, so first of all, I think you have to look at both parts. So the user on the one hand and the, the people within our company uh -huh. on the other hand, I would say. Yeah. And when it comes to the users, um, as I also said, we are really trying to build a product that is guiding the people. So we are actually not giving them too much room of choice when they arrive in our product. And that way we really can increase the the followership of our recommendations and this is also what we're seeing already that users really follow our recommendations that we give them within in the product which is probably also because most of the people as i said are not really educated and are very thankful for having recommendations when it comes to the mental health topic and mm -hmm. then in the company of course That's always a question, especially when you are at a stage where you're still collecting a lot of data and then you sometimes have the discussion within the team, but the end and, you know, the amount of data is still maybe not yet not enough to really have a strong database decision. So you, of course, have the subjective um, opinions as well. And at least in the end, I would say we always try to find a balance between it. So if the data are really reliable and valid, then we would always go for the data. But if the N is still still quite small, we try to do, like, let's say, weight decision-making and include also the expert opinions and try to weigh them as um, comparably to the data that we found. It's interesting that you bring the user in at that point because for most companies, that is a rather internal uh, view because they <laughs> try to make the product, sell the person, the user something or so. Uh, but in your case, yeah, of course, you are really giving guidance to your users. So it actually makes sense if they also uh, follow <laughs> follow what the data suggests. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> cool. um, which data tools and infrastructure do you use? Um, yeah, so in terms of tools and infrastructure, we are using Python, um, notebooks, pandas, um, Clern for EDA and model building, and we use AWS for hosting models. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the tool stack, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, structure of your data team, I think you already said you have a head of data and they work with product and engineering mostly. Exactly, exactly. They must have... A, a, anyway some some close interaction with with the teams who functionally actually then use the data but that is then organized in meetings simply and not through a reporting line i guess 
Exactly, exactly. That is organized in meetings. So to say, for example, operations is in need of uh, some some user data, and of course, psychology, since also mm -hmm. psychology is very involved into the product development, and needs to take decisions on what is going to develop to be developed next in order to increase the effectiveness. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And to whom does the head of data report? The head of data currently reports to our CTO, so okay. to the engineering team. Yeah. Okay. GDPR, is it a struggle or an opportunity? <laughs> and we would say maybe both. In my personal opinion, more of a struggle <laughs> because, um, of course, yeah, it, it creates some, some roadblocks on the way. Um, fortunately, we have faced this challenge quite early on and can now say that we have a good base when it comes to GDPR on which we can really build upon. But yeah, it never stops, which is why we also have a dedicated lawyer support on that part to always make sure we, we are compliant here. Um, and yeah, of course, it can be also seen as an opportunity because it makes data um, more safer and anonymous and also, of course, secures us as a, as a company to really be, be safe when it, came, when it comes to any data breaches or um, um, risks that we could face in terms of data. And if you do things right and in line with the, uh, with the policies, then you can actually make that a competitive advantage over competitors, potentially. Exactly. Environmental, social and governance. Why did you or didn't you, that's actually an interesting question, um, <laughs> start an ESG company? Would you say LikeMinded is an ESG company? Yes, we would definitely say like-minded is an ESG company since our topic of mental health is a social impact topic in the end. Mm -hmm. And we're convinced that we are solving really one of the biggest challenges that our world is currently facing since mental illnesses are really on the rise and um, have become worse and worse in the last years, especially during the pandemic. And it's unfortunately still a topic only a few people have access to. Mm -hmm. We're getting back to that. But what does like-minded do internally in order to help our environment to start with the E and ESG? Yes. So I would say there, there are two ways to look at this. So first of all, the interpersonal environment, um, which we are definitely facing with what we are offering. Um, so we are offering mental or psychological support to people and thereby creating or in, um, optimizing or improving the whole interpersonal environment for people, really help them face challenges in a better manner and also work better together, actually, because when you're doing well, you can also create good teamwork and um, actually living next to each other in peace and happiness. And the second part, environment, um, we are obviously a very small company yet. We're a tech company, so at least we're trying to do most of the things online. Um, we are partly remote, so we are always giving our people the choice to work from home, especially when it comes to people who are not based in Berlin. We are not asking them to take on the, the way. And of course, we are here also creating awareness for everything around um, environment and making sure that we follow more and more rules together and jointly as a company to um, be responsible here when it comes to environment and how we can actually do good for our environment. Mm -hmm. Then further to social, which is, uh, as you said, uh, the main point and actually your, your company's built around that. Which role does social play in the way you run your business? Yes, um, 
I think that's in general a really um, special question when it also comes to the topic of mental health, um, because sometimes it's also um, from some people expected with when you are offering a health service that it should be somehow for free, especially when it, when we're talking about Germany and Europe, where most of the health services are really taken over by insurances, by the government, so to say. That is for us now a very interesting area because the employer is actually paying for it. So actually the employer is taking over some social responsibility here because they are paying for the psychological services for their employees, um, which is, in my opinion, a great turn because I also believe that employers are responsible because they are expecting their people to be there 100% every day. But on top of that, um, we are not only doing everything for profit. There are definitely situations where we have done a lot of non-profit initi initiatives. So especially when it, uh, the Ukraine uh, crisis happened, we were offering sessions completely for free, group sessions and one-on-one -on -one sessions to our clients and to everyone who was directly or indirectly affected to Ukraine um, to the Ukraine crisis. Um, and in general, our topic opens up a lot of initiatives and moments where you can do good without even going for profit and where you can really tie it closely to the profit still because also you inc can include your clients who are open to take over some social responsibility. Mm -hmm. Last but not least, governance. Which criteria do you follow there? <laughs> yeah, also here, I think that's a question that is especially for startup startups a huge question since, of course, we are still in the development phase and we have to still define our government governance, so to say. What we are, however, really looking for is to create diversity in, within our leadership, but also within our company team. So we are looking for having a good distribution between uh, women and men in our company, but also between cultures, because, um, yeah, especially me personally, believes I believe very highly into diverse teams um, who bring in different perspectives on a, diff uh, on a similar problem or challenge. And this is what we are really valuing from so far. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of companies try to have an ESG focus, not only be an ESG company, but also um, like implement ESG criteria into their company. Do you think that for startups that, that are VC funded, do you think that rather helps them get funding or do you think investors rather see it as a deflection mm -hmm. from earning as much as possible? I, I can't really comment for other companies, I would say. I would say... I that in some cases when it comes when it comes to ESG um, some companies maybe also do a bit of greenwashing and rather put the the label onto their um, logo but are not really doing anything about it and I could even imagine that for some investors it might be seen as a roadblocker or something that is decreasing the speed but I really cannot comment for other companies. I can just say when it comes to, to our company, since we're a mental health company, I think it actually goes really hand in hand because the faster we grow, the, the faster we can scale, the greater our impact will be. So I think in that case, it's rather a helping factor for us. Mm -hmm. Do you have an ESG officer or something similar at Like-Minded? 
Not yet. Um, I would also say we're a bit too small yet to have a dedicated person for that already. But um, as I said, we're trying to be very aware of this topic as a founding team and um, making it also part of the company cultures. So one of our um, values is, for example, really breaking the stigma around mental health. And we have defined what this could mean on the operational um level so so people can really engage themselves into initiatives such as the uk ukraine initiative for example to support breaking the stigma um, of mental health and giving more and more people access to it mm -hmm. if a company has an esg officer or a similar function uh, where do you think should such a position sit to whom should that person report or yeah I think I would say it, it should be is somehow close to, to the leadership team. So probably it could be a one-person team and that is really responsible for, for anything around ESG, that is responsible for building partnerships, for creating initiatives around this topic that should be close to the, to the leadership team and then probably relate to one of the uh, leaders in the founding team. Mm -hmm. And that brings us to the last three questions. Number one, which is the one podcast all founders should listen to? <laughs> I think there are a bunch of podcasts, actually. But a podcast I actually personally really like is the podcast of Fabian Tausch, the Unicorn Bakery. Oh, because okay. I find it very authentic. And also, I was honored to be a guest already. And I really liked the discussion and interaction with Fabian. And um, yeah, it's a podcast that is created from founders for founders as well. And um, it's really authentic and honest when it comes to any, any of the questions and challenges around building a company. What a nice coincidence, because we actually just this week agreed with Fabian um, on a collaboration uh, in context of our Project A Knowledge Conference. So um, right. he, will, he will actually record uh, one of his podcasts live at the conference, um, and we will feature each other in the ramp up towards the event. Cool. Yeah, um, I can highly recommend. Good choice. <laughs> Um, what are your top two pieces of advice for early stage founders? Yes, um, I would say my first advice is try not to over engineer it and just do it. Um, so really according to the motto of failing fast, because I think especially in my generation, we tend to over engineer, we tend to be perfect, we tend to overstructure things because we are all very well educated. However, my learning is Try to just do it and fail fast because you will learn faster and you will become, you will get quicker to, to where you actually want to arrive. And the second thing is, I thought about it, I would say um, try to, to get yourself either into your founding team or into your investor team, really one to two people you can really trust and share everything with. Um, we are really lucky to have two very great business angels who are supporting us on our journey, who have a lot of experience of building company. And um, yeah, they're supporting us very well. And we have really a trust-based um, relationship, which I value a lot. Thank you so much. Last question and my personal growth hack for this podcast. Who are the two other founders I should ask these questions and you can and will make an introduction for me? Yes. So I would definitely recommend Teresa Haug. Teresa Haug is one of the founders of Econos. And Econos is a digital investment platform dedicated to sustainability. They actually give access to assets or investment opportunities that require large capital sums usually. 
and are normally really hard to access for private investors. And that is something they want to transform and change. So it's a green tech company. And the second one is Emilia Tyre. She's also a psychologist herself, and she built Claire and Me, which is an automatized voice bot for mental illnesses such as anxieties, so people can actually get access to psychological support as well, but based in the B2C sector. And that is it. Thank you so much, Kimberly. I wish you all the best for you and for like-minded. Thank you. Um, thanks to all the audience for listening in. We appreciate your interest. If you want to know more about Project A and the stuff we do, both on the investment side as well as grab operational knowledge, just go to projecta.com. And of course, visit us at the Project A Knowledge Conference in October. The ticket application process is open. For the podcast, if you want to hear more, subscribe, rate it, review it, and of course, share it with all your colleagues, friends, and families. Thank you and goodbye. Thank you. <laughs> Hello, podcast listeners. We have some exciting news for you. Our Project A Knowledge Conference is back and happening on October 7th at Kultur Brauerei in Berlin. If you want to get to the heart of the European startup ecosystem and connect with founders, leading investors, and digital experts, join us for a whole day of knowledge sharing and networking, where experts from every area of digital operations will share their insights and best practices. This year, we're bringing you an amazing speaker lineup, including Christian Hacker, co-founder and CEO at Trade Republic, Lubomila Jordanova, co-founder and CEO at Plan A, and Philip Glockler and Philip Klockner, co-hosts of the Doppelganger Tech Talk podcast. Apply for a free ticket now or purchase one directly from our website, knowledge-conference.project-a.com. 